As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me, as always, Simona Falanga. See, now I'm like trying to do the ASMR thing but I can't because I'm a New Yorker and I'm too loud. Maybe we'll do that for an episode. We'll do an entirely ASMR episode, you know? Like the bone whisperers? Yeah, just bang a bone, just bang the bone on the mic. <laughs> anyway, today's episode, we are returning. Not really returning. We've, we've been doing this series this whole time, but we are doing another episode in our mini-series that we've called Where in the World, which is letting us finally break out of our British shells and enter other parts of the world to take a look at the zooarchaeology there. And we're going continent by continent for ease, so a lot of space to cover, but we'll try to do our best. And today we'll be looking at Asia. Yes, roughly, as for the other episodes, the way it's going to work, so we'll cover some of the wild species that are prevalent in in this region, and then we'll focus on the domesticates. And finally, uh, what is allegedly your favourite, the case studies. <laughs> Our so-called favourite part of the episode. But I think I think it's a good part of the episode. So I think we get... can't take a hint, because we've said it so many times, you would have thought <laughs> that someone would have reinforced that on social media, going, yes, it is our favourite part of the episode. But it's been very quiet, so I think we just can't take a hint. <laughs> Uh, it's called manifesting, Simona. We're manifesting it into reality. <laughs> anyway, we will, as Simona said, start with the wild species that are native to this region of the world. And we'll start with the tiger. And as always, Simona will be doing the Latin because I cannot. Pantera tigris. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, although historically the tiger was distributed throughout Asia, today it is mostly found in the Southeast and Northeast Asia. And interestingly, and this is something I didn't know until we started doing the research for this episode, I didn't realize that the topic of tiger subspecies was such a huge site of debate <laughs> among geneticists. I guess that's not really our our lane. But yeah, there seems to be a general lack of consensus as to how many actually exist, which is 
I mean, to be fair, I don't think I could tell you how many subspecies there were for most animals off the top of my head. So no. it's not really a not really a thing you can easily see by bone, is it? No, probably just something at the genetic level. And also, if you, you realise, put it into perspective, I mean, there's so many subspecies, but because, you know, originally they had such a wide range, I mean, it's a big continent. Pretty big. <laughs> Would see a lot of variation there, but um, yeah, probably at a genetic level, mostly not in terms of sort of skeletal remains. Yeah, so it's not really something we personally get to cover, although, again, you know, I, I assume... You could see it through, say, ADNA work, things like that. And obviously, as ADNA work becomes more commonplace, I'm sure that there'll be some sites where zooarchaeologically they'll get down to the subspecies, which is pretty cool, to be honest. So it's been a massive debate among geneticists and biologists as to how many subspecies there are among tigers, but genome sequencing in 2018 may have finally narrowed down the actual number to around six subspecies. And for once, I won't make Simona read all the Latin names because there's tons of Latin names for her to read in this episode. But just to say, list the common ones, you have the Bengal tiger, the Amur tiger, the South China tiger, the Sumatran tiger, the Indo-Chinese tiger, and the Malayan tiger. Speaking of tigers, my cat is now staring at me and she's leaving because she's bored of this podcast. So, so she's the only real tiger. <laughs> she's the only real tiger has left. No, she's just sat behind me, so it's fine. We do have a tiger in our midst for this episode. Anyway, tigers have held a cultural importance throughout uh, the Asian continent, both in the past and also in the present. Remains have historically been used as amulets and as medicine, particularly in Chinese traditional medicine, which is, I think a lot of people think of Chinese traditional medicine as mostly plants and herbs, and it definitely is, but uh, Chinese traditional medicine also uses a lot of animal parts and also things like stones and metals. It's a very big kind of uh, field that I'm obviously very interested in. But yeah, tiger remains have been used as medicine in Chinese traditional medicine, but I believe laws have now made that a lot more difficult, unsurprisingly. And speaking of China, tigers are also the third animal in the Chinese zodiac. They represent the earth element. And uh, it's not just China, though. In Korea, the tiger is seen as a guardian against evil. And this is where we have to shoehorn one of our favorites. So get that bingo card out. Guess who it's would import tigers? The Phoenicians. Oh. No, don't be silly, Simona. It's the Romans. They would import tigers as part of their menageries and combat theater. Duh. Think of that. Oh. I mean, who else? But yes, uh, you, you, you do find uh, tigers being depicted on um, Roman mosaics, of course, for a lot of... Um, so, yeah, the combat theatre scenes or even sort of scenes of tigers or similar sort of wild animals being sort of corralled from the wild Romans. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you wouldn't be wrong for the most part if you you see any kind of non-European animal and you're like, the Romans probably 
took that back with them, right? <laughs> like, I feel like there's a smaller list of species they didn't take back. So the ones that they didn't voluntarily take, they took with them by mistake. True. And we have a whole episode about that kind of straggler animals, and you can find that in our, our backlog. But uh, have we finally reached Roman exhaustion? Oh, you say that. Uh, sure. That's just, that's, just, that's just tempting you at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out how we get Romans into our episode on Australia. Oh, we'll, we'll find a way. That's true. Fine. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on to our next species, the yes. giant panda. Yes, oh. uh, to see, find uh, any research to see if the Romans grabbed any of those from the wild. <laughs> yeah, the giant panda, Iluropoda melanoleuca, is primarily found in China, and you have sort of two subspecies, the Iluropoda melanoleuca melanoleuca, just stress it twice, you know, which is, you know, your typical black and white giant panda that usually, like, it tends to be more in people's imagination. And the kindling panda, the Iluropoda melanoleuca kindligensis. I hope you wrote that down. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this other subspecies is light brown and white in color. Now, prior to the 19th century, the giant panda was classified in Chinese as more. However, this was also the name for a mythical creature that had the trunk of an elephant, the feet of a tiger, the eyes of a rhino, and the tail of a cow. I'm trying to picture that. Well, I mean, you don't really have to imagine it because the reason why there's some confusion is some French expert made the mistake of thinking that moa referred to a tapir, <laughs> which is basically what they look like. So, yeah, trunk of an elephant, feet of a tiger, eyes of a rhino. Yeah, that's a tapir. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, really. if, if people do want to look it up, it's spelled M-O yeah, phonetically. It, it does look like you, you kind of can't blame them because it does look like a tapir. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, this has had a knockdown effect on archaeological interpretations of material culture depicting the mouth the mythical creature, causing archaeologists to infer that the tapir potentially have, um, have held a much higher sort of symbolic, impo symbolic importance that it actually had, as, of course, the iconography of the mythical creature was used to repel evil. So, Yeah, anyway, giant pandas remain the icon of China, and they're cool, and they're not tapirs, so jot that down. <laughs> have we learned anything today? Yes, Pandas are not tapirs. To be fair, and I, I, I can't believe I'm making this kind of uh, giving them the leeway, but uh, for people who don't know, Chinese language can be very difficult because you can have the same word and then depending on the way you use the tones, they could mean like six different things. So it's not surprising to me that there was this kind of weird mix up with the ma. Uh, and to be honest, I, as uh, some listeners may know, I am uh, Chinese American, so I do know some Chinese, but I am most likely doing the, the tones wrong in this episode. So apologies to any Chinese speakers who are going, oh my gosh, the tones are wrong. She has no idea what she's saying. She's saying something completely different. Uh, apologies for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. Yeah, could... I've, just, I've just found a photo, you know, it, 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 to be fair. <laughs> It's yeah. less look like it. It looks so much like it. 
Like, you can't really fault him. If I looked at that, I'd be like, that's a tapir. And if you look back at some of the archaeological kind of depictions of what people thought were tapirs uh, and were actually the maw, you would also think that. So, I mean, it's all, I think it's only something that's kind of within the last couple of decades has really had a, a real evaluation. But it's interesting, for sure. <laughs> so pandas, not tapirs. Very important lesson. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think we should get to our, our last wild uh, species, which is the Asian elephant. Elephas Maximus. Now, we have covered the African elephant previously, so there's not that much different to really talk about, at least, you know, biologically, anatomically. The Asian elephant is spread throughout South and Southeast Asia. And has three subspecies. Okay. Here we go. The Elephas Maximus Maximus, so like the big, big, you know, which is the Sri Lankan elephant. Elephas Maximus Indicus, which is the mainland Asian elephant. And Elephas Maximus Sumatranus, the Sumatran elephant. Good job. I'm always impressed by your ability. I mean, it makes sense. I know that you are Italian, so... It's not that difficult, but that is uh, extremely difficult for me. And I took four, four terms of Latin, so good job. I, I, I just read it as I, with an Italian accent. I mean, it's a good tip for people who are trying <laughs> to speak Latin. <laughs> any any uh, high school or college students out there who are taking Latin right now, Take Simona's advice. If you don't remember how to pronounce something, just do it in an Italian accent. You'll probably make your way through. Oh, oh okay. I'm getting really horrible scenes now. <laughs> anyway, so getting back to the elephant. During the Mesolithic, meat was likely scavenged from fallen elephants with actual elephant hunts probably being rare given, you know, it's a bit difficult, I think, to hunt an elephant, particularly with kind of low grade or you know not as sophisticated weaponry so understandable i feel like it's a high risk a high gain but uh, also very high risk because i think uh, one of them sort of touches you ever so slightly you're pretty much done for probably true this is uh, extremely true now during the neolithic elephant remains particularly the ivory from his tusks would become much more prevalent in archaeological contexts as worked artifacts elephants would become unsurprisingly a very important part of cultural iconography particularly in harappan material culture which we will talk about later a spoiler alert and in places like Kerala, India, the elephant is actually a central component to local rituals and festivals having been historically woven into local legends and lore to the point that I think there's um, uh, like 700 elephants that are owned by either organizations or individuals in Kerala. So big big importance on elephants there and i think that's kind of going to be the running theme this episode not elephants but the uh kind of running theme of iconography and cultural importance that exists today and i think we've, we've touched upon this in previous episodes but it is interesting to see how far some of this iconography lasts and how much we still have these kind of 
associations with certain species that are actually thousands of years old. You know, like how we all mistake the tapir for a panda. It makes me wonder particularly about a lot of the, you know, the interpretations we have, like of uh, representations of animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Sorry, maybe... I, don't, I don't know what I'm saying. No, I think <laughs> I, I, if, I, if I'm understanding what you were about to say, if I'm, I'm reading your mind correctly across time and space, I feel like it could be a tricky thing in it's almost chicken and egg, do we? And make this interpretation because we already think this way about said animal, or is this more of a interpretation that has like contextual evidence? That makes sense. The blue, blue Similarly, but not, not related at all. I, I want to know what's the deal with um, the cats riding the snails in illuminated manuscripts. <laughs> Again, that's, you know, a very common cultural thing that exists to this day. All those snails being ridden by cats. Because I feel I, like that would have been a beautiful sort of folklore legend that's been lost to time. And now yeah. it's just memes. Yeah, now it's just on that weird medieval guy's Twitter, which makes me laugh every single time I see it. And I think as we ponder these very deep questions as to whether or not cats riding snails has deeper cultural connotations, I think we will take a break and we'll come back and talk a bit more about domesticates, all those really different domesticated species. And it's definitely not going to be very similar to the last couple of episodes. And it's uh, definitely not going to be just various iterations of cattle. Oh, no. 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 Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. And we are talking about the zooarchaeology of Asia today as part of our Where in the World mini-series. And now we'll be looking at the domesticated species from this region that definitely won't be just several different species of cattle at all. Well, so some are slightly like furrier than others. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. I'll be honest, folks. It's <laughs> We did talk about this in a previous episode, I think, but domesticated species... 
kind of similar throughout the world. And obviously, you do get different species. But unsurprisingly, we all have very similar needs. And so very similar types of species were domesticated. So, yeah, so I guess we tried to go for domesticated species that are not quite what we'd find sort of across the board. So like moving aside from our chickens and our sheep and so forth. Although we obviously do cover those in various different species. And I think that's been one of the kind of interesting things about this miniseries is seeing how, you know, even though we have every place kind of seems to have their own cattle, their own sheep, their own chicken, really something adjacent to that. There are slight differences that are very, you know, regional specific, culturally specific. So constants and variables, I guess, which is interesting. Because like one, I guess that's a, a not cattle that um, I find quite, they're quite interesting, like one, not quite species, but various breeds of a yeah. given species are sort of all the um, sort of imperial Chinese chicken breeds. Mm. Mainly, well, they're kept throughout the world now, but mainly sort of as ornamental chickens because for laying eggs, they're really not good. Um, but there's some um, some beautiful breeds of birds. Yes, definitely. And we love our our duck in China. <laughs> Could have done duck to talk about that century egg, which is still very gross to me. Apologies to my Chinese family members. <laughs> I don't get it. Anyway, we won't be talking about ducks or birds at all. Sorry, did you have something to say? Well, just we'll be talking about big undulates instead. Yeah, very much not birds, really. So we will start with the water buffalo. Bubalus bubalis. It's a very cute (laughs) scientific (laughs) name. Bubalus bubalis. Oh, it's so cute. I love that name so much. So originally from South and Southeast Asia, they are actually found throughout Europe, which I actually didn't know. And like many of these species, there are different types. So there are two distinct types of water buffalo. So there's the river buffalo, which is found mainly in India, and the swamp buffalo, which is Found in Southeast and Eastern Asia. Yeah, like about the water buffalo being found in Europe. So normally when you do find sort of buffalo meat, it does tend to be water buffalo. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Huh. Wonder why. No, easy to keep. I don't know. So the modern day water buffalo is domesticated. There is, unsurprisingly... Again, another theme in these episodes, there's some debate as to where the water buffalo was actually domesticated. And it's originally been assumed that it was domesticated in China, but more recent, or at least within the past decade, uh, there's been genetic research that has suggested otherwise. And one of the uh, things about this, we you know, we were talking about how there's only so many species that can get domesticated. One of the things we'll find in this episode with kind of all the different cattle we'll be talking about is that China, not China, uh, Asia, <laughs> and to be honest, China as well, being as big as of a continent it is, it's very vast and varied when it comes to the types of environments that you deal with. So a lot of these domesticated cattle are domesticated because of the very specific adaptations. 
and characteristics that make it useful for the certain area they're in. So with water buffalo, per se, they're suited to working in paddy fields because of the wet and muddy environment. And is also used as a pack animal. So that is exactly why you want a water buffalo and not necessarily, say, your your everyday uh, boss towers. And it's so if you if you think or you look at images of say rural China, uh, these are the kind of domesticates you'll find in paddies, and it's also as well as being used as a pack animal and as a beast burden, it's also used uh, for dairying for meat, which is known as cow beef, and their horns, which they do have very distinctive horns, they're used in traditional instruments such as the Koval of the Balkans and Anatolia and the Ney of the Middle East. Next is a, a, another favourite as far as scientific names go. There's the domestic yak, false <laughs> grunyids, which is literally the grunting ox uh, or the hairy cattle for obvious reasons if, if you look up a photo. The yak is found primarily in the Himalayas and Northeast Asia and the domesticated species that we have now descends from the wild yak, obviously. Bos mutus, which again sort of makes me chortle because bos mutus, it makes me like mutus, can you think mutus. of mute? Like the mute ox? Ah, yeah. As yeah. opposed to then when it got domesticated and it started <laughs> grunting. Because <laughs> it's doing all that work. <laughs> I mean, I would if I'm just like wild, just like running free and then like, oh no, like oh, be a beast of burden, work here. And then just grunting all the time. But the yak are useful as pack animals and they provide meat as well as secondary products in the form of wool and dairy. The butter made from their milk is arguably quite famous, uh, famously part of Tibetan tea. For parts of the Himalayas without trees, their dung is also quite vital uh, as a fuel resource. Um, the importance of the animals sort of in general to the inhabitants of Tibet can be seen in material culture as well. So with iconography, again, another one of the running themes found in sculpture and pottery, as well as remains left in context of note. Yeah, the uh, thing about using the dung as fuel, it's that's one other thing that I just generally never really thought about, which is, oh, there's a lack of trees in the Himalayas, huh? Like, yeah. The best use something else. If only there were a big ox that's grunting all the time. <laughs> Uh, as well as I, I feel like I had to put a note to mention the Tibetan tea because when I was a kid and was really getting interested in you know world cultures and anthropology and things like that, I remember reading about Tibetan tea, which is basically just tea, and they would put yak butter in it. And I was so obsessed with that concept and I'm still am and I'm very curious. I would love to have it one day because it's just, it's fascinating me. Like, I want to know what that tastes like. Oh, just look at it. Yaks all with the little saddles. Oh, they look mm. so cute. They're so cute. They are so adorable. But yeah, they're also just they're extremely important to the inhabitants of Tibet and is just so seen and so much of the iconography there and they're they're very cute so why not why wouldn't you put it there i mean come on i get it and uh, again they're also just so important because of let's be real it's extremely cold up there huh so having such a, a, a resource for 
thick wool, as well as very calorie heavy dairy that could be used to keep you fueled and warm up there. Again, it's that kind of example of a species domesticated for very specific reasons. And I guess we'll go to our next cattle going away from the Himalayas and a bit down further to the Bali cattle. Bos Javanicus domesticus. So it is a domesticated descendant of the wild Bantang. Bos Javanicus. <laughs> Thank you. Which potentially from a domestication event from about 3,500 years ago. So the Bali cattle are found in Southeast Asia. And like the other domesticated bovines we've kind of talked about this episode, they are actually used mostly for plowing rice paddies as well as for their meat. And in addition, they're known for being particularly resistant to most diseases and have very high fertility rates. So they are very hardy, domesticated animal to have around. And you can understand why people domesticate these, these animals. And I believe they do sometimes crossbreed them with other bovine. Uh, but for the most part, I believe the ballycoddle are just, just doing their thing, being themselves. Hardy, hardy animals. Hardy animals. Shout, shout out to hardy animals everywhere around the world. Hashtag hardy animal. Hashtag hardy animals. Hashtag chunky toes. <laughs> yeah. And our, our last bovine for the day is <laughs> the, the Gael. Bos frontalis. Just, yeah, another type of ox. I mean, like, Clearly, again, another like takeaway of today. So, because we'll repeat after me. So, one, pandas are not tapirs, and uh, number two is there a surprising amount of diversity of bovids in Asia, which actually surprises no one probably. <laughs> but yeah, the gael are also known as the drunk ox, and are found in southern and eastern Asia. So the gael are considered to be only semi-domesticated, so like think reindeer. So I guess more of a managed species, but they still sort of have a very significant cultural and economical importance among many ethnic groups in India. Sorry, because even though he's been uh, silent for the entire episode, our producer Tristan is very much still here and uh, thinks it's great to distract us with jokes on the chat of a recording software but yes going back to the guile i, I was talking about uh, its significant sort of cultural and economic importance among many ethnic groups in india so that includes the naga and the adi and the guile is often seen as a symbol of social status and is used ritually as sacrifices originally we should have already mentioned that at the beginning uh, that it originates from the wild gaur, also known as the Indian bison, so bison gaurus. Yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, the reason why that was at the end of that uh, note is because there's been a lot of debate as to the domestication status of the gaur. And again, another running theme is that looking at genetics is really hard and still very much uh, a difficult thing. So 
a lot of these species we've been talking about, it's only been in the last, say, decade or so that we've really gotten an understanding as to where they may have been domesticated from. And I think one of the issues is that, you know, as we were saying, there's so many different species of bovids in Asia. There's a potentiality to kind of crossbreeding and things like that. So you could, you know, without genetics, make arguments for some kind of similar lineage among a lot of these bovids. But yeah, we are making progress in that area, I guess. Yeah, I think like we have a, a new hashtag here looking at the guile. Chunky horns. They are chunky horns. It's got real chunky horns. I think that's actually one of the things that I was really interested in when we were doing this episode is that even though we have done, let's see, one, two, three, four different kind of cattle species for this part of the episode, they're all very different looking i mean they they all do if you looked at them you would say oh that's like a cow right but they are very distinctively different from each other which is kind of cool to see i mean asia is a massive continent that's obviously going to have a lot of biodiversity there but i think when we're kind of grouping them into these groups of you know domesticates and even though at the end of the day these species are more or less used or at least you know bred for very similar purposes whether it's to do pack being pack animals doing plowing being used for secondary products they're still themselves very different and very diverse well because i guess also in a way they're not all cattle strictly speaking oh yeah of course they're they're not some don't even well most don't even belong to the genus boss i believe it's just the valley cattle that does and in fact it is the animal that most resembles sort of your stereotypical sort of cattle even though they seem to have horns a little bit all over the place there seems to be a lot of individual variation on the Mm -hmm. shape of the horns because they tend to be quite small but some are facing down some are facing up and some go backwards like a goat which is very interesting to see on a cattle-like animal. But uh, yes, I mean, the majority of them are not really cattle per se. They are just, yeah, big bovids. Big boys. Big bovid boys. Big chunky boys. Hashtag. (laughs) Well, I think the, the moment we start making up hashtags, I think it's time to take a break for a bit. And we'll come back with, as we said before, the, the part of the show that only us think is the best part of the show. But whatever what we say goes, we will see you after this break for the case studies. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. We are doing our episode on the zooarchaeology of Asia as part of our Where in the World mini-series, where we've been looking at the zooarchaeology of various regions and continents throughout the world, because God knows that we need to stop talking about Britain all the time. <laughs> it's been interesting, though. I can't lie. It was a good, it's a good uh, way to get us out of our shell and talking about different species and different just all different types of things that we wouldn't really be talking about if we stuck to our expertise oh absolutely (laughs) so yeah we are at the case studies as always the part that we will just demand that people make it their favorite part of the episode (laughs) 
I don't know why we started doing that, to be completely honest. <laughs> Maybe because it's our favorite, really. I mean, yeah, I think it's, I always see it as the, the part of the episode where everything comes together. Because we, we usually spend the first two parts talking about very specific technical things. And the case studies lets us bring everything together, the contextual stuff and, you know, the the history of the actual excavation sometimes. Or, you know, we just kind of have a laugh. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing, because in a way, like, it really depends from episode to episode, but it tends to be sort of a more, not quite practical approach, but like, depending on how sort of in-depth, how much time we have to go sort of more in-depth, you see the actual sort of zoo archaeology being uncovered on site, and so sort of the interpretation of the evidence found on site, and not just mm. sort of the notionistic sort of discussion about like various domesticates and wild species and their relevance yeah i think it's like the first two parts of the episodes we're talking about you know what we know about the species the kind of knowledge that already exists and then the case studies are just examples of applying that knowledge perhaps yeah on an archaeological <laughs> site yeah yeah as one tends to do in these situations. In the field, anyway, that is archaeology. Yes, um, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll start of, off with a, with a nice um, Bronze Age site. So it's the, it's the zoo archaeology of Harappa, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So as I said, it's a Bronze Age site located in Punjab, Pakistan, and it's part of the broader Indus Valley civilization. The site itself was an elaborate city and an important part of the Indus Valley trade routes, eventually becoming a major center for culture and economy. During urbanization, inhabitants likely utilized animal husbandry as part of their subsidence strategy, supplemented through fishing and like various other marine resources. Ivory was common, commonly found as raw material on site, implying an abundance of elephant remains or elephants as a resource, either in or you know, around mm -hmm. sites or in that general area. Similarly, there have been many elephant skeletal remains, and elephant iconography in Harappan contexts. Some have argued that this could indicate not only the cultural significance of the elephant, but potentially evidence of early elephant taming and management. Though arguably the most famous set of artefacts coming out of Harappa are the animal seals, which we could argue are important to zoological understandings of the past. So like real animals, so to speak, found on these seals included bulls, bison, elephants, tigers, and also mythical creatures, including a unicorn, or I mean like a bovine creature with one horn. Get horned hybrid creatures, including tigers and elephants, three-headed bovins, and human-animal hybrid creatures, because we also, we always love one of those, like the human-animal things. <laughs> uh, the latter may actually be depictions of mythological stories that have since been lost to time. Uh, again, going back at what we were discussing uh, a couple segments ago. Yeah. About like what sort of remains we find now or certain iconography, of how many of these are actually part of sort of stories and traditions that are so like far removed into the past that we've, uh, we don't really know what they represent anymore. Yeah. In terms of like non-mammalian sort of depictions on these seals, you, you do find birds as well, including what some are believed to have been chickens, which again, as in turn being used as evidence towards potentially early domestication of the chicken here. But again, that is 
debatable because we don't necessarily have the corresponding sort of skeletal evidence to corroborate that theory. Yeah. And I guess it is hard because you're basing it on iconography. And especially a lot of these sites, iconography can be so stylistic and so artistic removed from a realistic portrayal that it, it can be tricky. But I do like, and I, I don't think we get to really do this Maybe in episodes like this, when we're talking about a very specific culture or region, but I don't think we really get a chance to kind of chat about zooarchaeological adjacent things. So artifacts that are depictions of animals that aren't necessarily animal remains themselves, because even if they aren't, you know, osteological remains is not something that you could really do zooarchaeological analysis the way that we talk about it too. It is important to the way we we look at animals because obviously zooarchaeology isn't just animals that are being bred or eaten or hunted. It's also the animals that we you know think about. Uh, was it good to think with? Is the the phrase for animals? But it's important to kind of think about how artistically we depict animals and how we depict animals and our stories and culturally because that affects how what we do to the the animals that we actually interact with because also in a way like it adds another piece of the puzzle because yes you get the yeah. sort of the more sort of scientific side of things with the skeletal elements and the analysis mm-hmm. sort of, of your assemblage on site mm-hmm. but at the end of the day sort of what we do what i like to think is that we're we're not just looking at necessarily a substance and primary or secondary products but there we're trying to reconstruct human-animal relationships mm-hmm. in the past in a way the depictions of those animals and the way they're depicted also contributes to what the relationship was there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, to, to use a maybe a more modern depiction, but it's the one I think about whenever talking to people and telling them why it's important we look at not only animal bones, but also the way animals are used and how we, at least we can interpret animal use in more artistic things is say Jaws, the the film, which, you know, really put a, a dent in the way general public viewed sharks. Obviously people were, were always probably afraid of sharks, but it's that, that kind of shark mania really intensified after that film came out. And, you know, it's something that you could arguably see even in the, the deep past, you know, if there was folklore about a certain species that put it in a very negative light that affects the way people see that species and how they interact with it and obviously vice versa. So here in Harappa, we have so much evidence of potentially elephant, even if it wasn't, you know, early elephant taming or management, still elephant use in ivory and things like that. And that gets reflected in the iconography, the fact that iconography becomes very prevalent in Harappan contexts and cultures. Obviously, it was used so much in everyday life that it gets kind of just juxtaposed no no that's not the word it gets applied really to the way people think about it artistically so it's interesting yeah i guess like going back to the bird depiction so it looks like chicken i mean i guess also yes it could be an early representation of a chicken but i wonder like the wild ancestor of the chicken like the jungle fowl yeah it doesn't look too dissimilar from a standard chicken yeah not terribly so i think that that was part of the reasoning as to why people were using it as potential evidence of early chickens uh, there. 
But again, a bit with stylistic depictions, it can be very tricky. But who knows, you know, if we, you know, the, the, the real debate against that is that there really isn't any corresponding skeletal evidence. So there could be someday, but definitely interesting to think about. There's like all sorts of variables, because then what if the remains didn't preserve for one reason or another, or they were disposed somewhere far away from the settlement? It's just, it's it's one of those things. It's the, it's the underlying anxieties of archaeology that will always remain <laughs> throughout time until we get time machines. Like, as, 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 as good as our skills and our technology gets, we will always have that tiny smidge of... Maybe we're missing something, but I kind of like that. I kind of like having that. Maybe it's because it gives me a slight out for being wrong sometimes, if not all the time. But it's because we've not found it yet. No, we didn't find it yet. It's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> anyway, from from this very deep conversation we just had, we will be going to our next case study, which is the zooarchaeology of Yinshu. So Yinshu is a word that actually refers to the ruins of the city of Yin, which is located in the Hunan province of China. And it was likely an important capital during the Shang dynasty. I believe even in the terminology, Yin is often associated with the word Shang. So there was definitely association there. So it was most likely an important capital uh, around that time. So Yinshu is arguably most notable for the many, many oracle bones that have been recovered from the site. And I've, I've realized that I think this is the first time we're talking about oracle bones, which I love oracle bones, so that's surprising. I think we may have mentioned it in a very, very early episode. I've got a very faint recollection. Probably about ritual. <laughs> Actually, yes, very likely, um, most definitely. It's Because it's like the thing I would think about immediately, you know, despite the biases, I guess, about me being Chinese. So oracle bones are also referred to, uh, at least in Chinese traditional medicine, as uh, longgu, or dragon bones. They are often made from either ox scapula or turtle pastron, which is the underside of the turtle shell. And they're usually made from fragments of those kind of bones. And they will get questions carved into them that also have been known to represent some of the earliest Chinese script that we have, which is also extremely interesting. And just to get a bit more nerdy about it, if you look at what early Chinese script looks like, it is you can pinpoint the kind of similarities between it and more modern Chinese script uh, in terms of the way that the, the characters have been kind of transformed and modernized. And I, I think it's one of the only easy things about learning Chinese. So I, I, I learned Chinese a bit late in life and I'm still, I still struggle with reading Chinese, but there's certain characters that you can see they come from this er the early kind of characters and you can kind of tell what they're trying to to you know display like a field being kind of a square and things like that so it's, it's really interesting to see the kind of transformation and yet the retaining of kind of traditional things in that anyway so you would get 
a uh, ox scapulae or a turtle pastern, you would uh, scrape off the meat from the bone. You would then polish and smooth the surface as best as possible. And then you would drill little pits or holes into the surface. And then you would start to carve in your questions. You would usually carve in a kind of like a dedication or something, depending on, you know, who and where you were getting this done. Then you would kind of carve in the question you were asking. And then you would have a heat source, so like a, a poker or a piece of wood with like fire on it. Uh, you would insert it into one of the pits uh, or, or holes that were made until the bone itself cracked. And then you would take these cracks and you would interpret them. I don't know if we really have great understanding of how the cracks were specifically interpreted, but it's, again, it's extremely interesting. And that kind of fortune telling is very prevalent still in a lot of Chinese, modern day Chinese culture. And another really important part of Yin Shu is the tomb of Fu Hao also known as uh, Fu Hao Mu. It's uh, interpreted as the burial place of Fu Hao, who was not only the wife of Shang ruler Wu Ding, but also a military general in her own right, which is extremely cool. And along with various bronze artifacts, including loads and loads of weapons, which I think is Part of the reason why that interpretation came to pass, there were the remains of 15 human attendants and six dogs were also buried there and they were all likely sacrificed uh, at burial. And it should also be noted that this tomb was excavated by uh, the person who many refer to as the first lady of Chinese archaeology herself, Zhong Jianshao. So gay trailblazers. A lot, of, a lot of feminism in that case study. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's um, um, embarrassingly no little about uh, ancient Chinese tombs and burial archaeology and funerary archaeology. So I was very happy to also kind of put that into this case study as well as the Oracle Bones, because I just love to have an excuse to talk about Oracle Bones. Yeah, I think we might have mentioned the ritual episode. That makes sense. I think it's, you know, obviously many other cultures have used bones to do divination and things like that, particularly taking fragments and doing, you know. Is it technically called, is it pyromancy? Yeah, this is technically pyromancy because what you're interpreting is the, the, the fire cracking. Uh, which is also, I guess, interesting from a taphonomic perspective, because obviously you would have evidence of slight burning, direct burning, really, on a lot of these bones. Yeah, because you'll give you information about the temperature they were heated at as well, because were they charred, were they calcined, a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, actually, realistically, the oracle bones are like a, a treasure trove of taphonomic uh, characteristics between, obviously, the, the fire element, but also the actual preparation, the fact that oracle bones are often having to be scraped and then polished and smoothed and having the actual pits made as well. It's a very intricate, particularly, you know, I mean, they are, they are obviously using much hardier bone like like ox scapulae which is pretty hardy but 
it's clearly it's a lot of kind of processing. Yeah, but yeah. I guess you you would reconstruct that through the taphonomic evidence that you have. So you'll know the flesh would be removed. One, because you might find sort of slicing or cut marks on the bone to take the flesh mm-hmm. off, but also in the way that it burns. Because, of course, if you put a meat-bearing element on the fire, so say, you know, you stereotypically you see your cartoon sort of joint to bone with a little bit of the femur sticking, the cartoon femur sticking out. You know, mm. just picture that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know, like the bone that sticks out is going to char while mm-hmm. the bit that's bearing the meat is not going to be as heat affected because it's, it's cushioned by all that flesh all around. Yeah. So of course, if the heat gets distributed sort of roughly evenly, like it's safe to say that there was no meat attached to that bone. Mm-hmm. And well, and well, I forgot about the polishing. <laughs> yeah. With some polishing in there as well. Oh well, yeah. You got to polish. You got to make it nice. If you're going to use it for divination purposes, you know, obviously. But I guess it's fitting, though, that we end this episode on some ritual, because it's one of our favorite things to talk about. And yeah, I think that's that's it for us. As usual, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to our backlog at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Also think about becoming a member. Help support all the podcast shows there, as well as ourselves. Get some bonus uh, content, maybe an ASMR zoo archaeology (laughs) episode down the way. If you want to hear some some bones getting shattered or something, we'll think about it. Maybe just, uh, you know, become a member and you'll see. You can find us on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals and tell your friends to listen, subscribe, follow, what all the other fun stuff, and leave a review because it, I like to be validated. I need to be validated. So yeah. Validate so, me! Validate me. <laughs> all right. Well, as always, I'm Alex Fitzpatrick. Simona Falanga. And we will see you next time for our next episode. That sounds like something more exciting, but oh well. It's fine. We'll have another episode. It's fine. <laughs> see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.